This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break, and at the worst possible time. Call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay Severin. On today's show, we're talking about the aftermath of the Iowa caucus, the winners, the losers, and the whiners. We'll take a look at why Trump is crying foul and why Rubio is dancing. We'll talk Bernie and Hillary and, of course, the Super Bowl. This is all coming up right now. Good afternoon and welcome to the Jay Severin Show. Charlie Harari filling in for Jay. Honored to be with you today. And i got to say that last week I had the honor of filling in for Buck. And the support and the feedback that I got from the listeners of The Blaze was unbelievable. This is really the greatest audience around and I am so honored and appreciate being here with you today. We've got a lot to talk about. Let's start with the Hawkeye State. Iowa caucuses were this week. And the, the answer, the aftermath of the Iowa caucus is still being feel, felt right now. Cruz comes out with a big win, 28% of the vote, followed by Trump and Rubio. And what I saw that night after, obviously, Cruz is winning, I was up there literally refreshing every 10 seconds. I just couldn't get the information quick enough. My kids are like, Daddy, what are you doing? I'm like, just refreshing, just refresh, refresh, until all the precincts were finally reported and Cruz came out a winner. And I, I was, it was so exciting to watch Ted Cruz get up there and, and take the mantle. And I got to tell you something. My first reaction to that night was watching Donald Trump give his what was a concession speech. Now, remember, let's take this in context for a second. This is Iowa, right? This isn't the election. We're talking about 1% of the delegates, right? This is nothing. This is the runoff. This is like the dress rehearsal before the real play, right? I mean, I love Iowa and I love the Huck. You know, I love you guys. But, like, let's be real for a second. We didn't even begin. And it's like, forget about it. So Trump gets up there, and he, and I got to tell you, he gets up and he's like, listen, I love Iowa. You know, Ted's a great guy. And, of course, Trump being Trump. And I'll buy a farm. And I'm like, okay. And I, he finishes in like three minutes. And, I, and I, he's done. And I say to myself, you know, I kind of like that guy. You know, I, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting, like, we should have won. And this is terrible. And I hate Ted. And, you know, Iowa, forget you guys. Like, I was really expecting Trump to be Trump. But he wasn't. He was quite, what's the word I'm looking for? Presidential, no? I thought so. I was like, you know, oh shoot, am I liking this guy now? And that night, I remember myself thinking, wow, maybe I don't know Trump. Maybe I, get, I, maybe I 
you know, gave him a pat. Maybe I was just too hard on him in the beginning, and maybe you know, I called him a bully and what he did with the you know with the whole debate thing rubbed me wrong. But look how gracious he was on the stage after he lost, and then Monday, and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday rolled around, and once Wednesday rolled around. The real Donald Trump got up again. We got right back to business. And for those of you paying attention, on Wednesday, Donald Trump took it to his media platform, Twitter, which is now becoming the biggest political media platform around, and started to really, really lace lace in to Ted Cruz. I mean, like calling what he did illegal and saying that he the vote was stolen. He wants a recount in Iowa, and he's just blasting and blasting and blasting Cruz. Let me just take you a step back as to what is going on over here. In the middle of, of the, the, the night that night, um, the, a reporter at CNN reported that Ben Carson was heading down to Florida. Now, it was, I guess, construed on a night where candidates were dropping out that he was suspending his presidential campaign. Right. CNN didn't report it that way. But the innuendo was something was going on for a report to come out of CNN that one of the candidates is not going to New Hampshire, sticking in Iowa. Well, the Cruz guys jumped on it and basically sent it a tw- tweet saying, hey, guys, you know, for those who are voting for Carson, come and, you know, caucus for Cruz. That was the big deal. And that it, obviously it was wrong. And ultimately, Cruz apologized to Carson and he was a little he sort of accepted and he really didn't. And it was like done. Right. And it's not like, you know, it's not like Bush lost by like 15 votes. It's not like the Bernie Hillary thing where you, you're basically deciding the caucus based on, you know, coin flips. Right. We're talking about a good 6000 votes that Cruz had over Trump, but it didn't really matter. And Trump goes on this tirade. I mean, this tirade calling him a liar and a cheat and it's illegal and he stole it and he wants it back and he stole it and he stole it. And, you know, and you're watching this a little bit and you're asking yourself, why? Why does he care about Iowa? It doesn't matter. He's up by an enormous lead in New Hampshire. Just be gracious. I mean, really, how many coaches do you have sitting around a year later going, hey, well, you know, last year the Patriots had the, you know, the whole thing when they deflated. They just move on. It's a game. You lost. He pulled a trick. This happened and this didn't happen. And now you move on to the next one. You have an entire 49 more states to go. So my first thought was that this is just Trump being Trump, right? I mean, how many games, as a kid growing up, I used to play a lot of sports. How many games have I gone through? And I bet you anyone who's ever played a game, you know what I'm talking about. How many games have you gone through where, like, that pampered kid gets the ball at the end? You know what I'm talking about? That kid who's got, like, the entire getup on. He's got the new shoes and he's got the right hair and he's got the latest gimmicks from Under Armour underneath his jersey and he's, like, 12. You know what I'm talking about? And he's got mom and dad in the front screaming at the rest. How many times have you seen that kid get the ball at the end of the game, shoot, miss, and then turn around and scream at the ref, who's 40 years older than him, that he's blind, right? And, of course, his parents just agree with the kid, which is only making the kid even more horrible, more Trumpy. So how, I'm thinking to myself, this is just Donald Trump, right? This is what he does. I mean, like, self-absorbed. He's, he lost. And at some point when you lose, you got to wake up in the morning and go, oh, my God, maybe I didn't run a good enough ground game. Like, maybe, you know, politics is also retail. Maybe I should have had more people on the ground. Maybe it's not about getting up in big crowds and saying I'm the best and everyone else is the worst. Maybe there's more to this really, this, this ground game of politics that I missed. Let's make adjustments. We'll get back the next time. No, 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 no. To me, at first... This is the whiny kid saying, hey, I was fouled. No, 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 I was fouled. I was fouled. Not me, I was fouled. But then I started thinking about it. Now, you don't become a billionaire by just being, you know, a crybaby. 
And you don't win, well, honestly, you don't get to where you are in life by just crying foul every time. I don't want for a second to portray Donald Trump as not being smart. He's very smart. I may not agree with some of his character. I may think that he's a little self-absorbed, and I may think that he's got the wrong value, especially for the Republican Party. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this is a smart man. You don't just get to where he is unless you're using your brains. Now, he, he is using one of the greatest tactics of all time. It's so good that we don't even realize it. Maybe we do, but we don't even appreciate just what he is accomplishing right now. This is just brilliant. What Donald Trump has done in two days is masterful. I think it's wrong, but it's masterful nonetheless. And let me explain it to you, because when you see it, you're going to call it out. And like me, you're going to scream from the, at least I am, scream from the rooftops. Let me, let me tell you a little story. I had a buddy of mine, we weren't that close, but he was in, grew up in my neighborhood who was like that kid who was always kicked out of school. You know that kid? You may be that kid, right? Like that's always, you know, just could, school was not made for that kid, right? Tough, a little bit of a tough life, a little bit of a tough kid. And he came out of high school and I don't think anybody thought he would amount to anything. Always in trouble with something. But, you know, God has plans for everybody and where this kid failed in school, he really succeeded on the street. He was a good guy and he's charismatic and he was, hus- he was a big hustler. And he got involved in this real estate company. This is years ago. And they had him run around and do some you know, errands and then run around and meet with people. And, you know, slowly, slowly, while all his friends were going to college and then going to graduate school and starting their careers, this guy was making money and just really almost hand over fist. The market, the market was booming. These two real estate older guys were using him more and more and more. And now this young guy was really succeeding in the world of real estate and getting he was getting richer and richer. Now, this caused a little bit of jealousy, I think, amongst his friends. And they, you know, you know, I know these guys, they're good guys. But, you know, if, whenever you have a friend who's the biggest goofball and you turn around four years later and you're like, your biggest problem is my taking, you know, philosophy or, you know, uh, you know sociology in, in, in college. And his problem is like, how, what's the new car I should buy? You can't help but, you know, garner a little bit of jealousy. And about, you know, a few years after that, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then one day, it comes out that his partners had been stealing money from their clients. His partners were running a Ponzi scheme, a little bit of a Ponzi scheme, where they were taking the money and they weren't investing it. They were actually pulling it back, basically a tiny little version of what Bernie Madoff did, and it was a really big explosion. So it comes out, and he obviously feels you know, he's caught in the crosshairs. Now, I'm a lawyer by training, so I was called in to help. And I realized this guy did nothing wrong. He is completely innocent from all his allegations. But what happened was his buddies started to whisper that this guy was a crook. And the neighborhood started to get around that this guy was a crook. And slowly, slowly, this guy was labeled as a crook. And what did that do for him? It killed him. We're going to talk when we come back just the impact of what those rumors did for him and just what. Donald Trump is doing to try to get a similar impact on Ted Cruz. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay Severin, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. This is Jay Severin Severin. on the Blaze Radio Network.
When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. The Jay Severin Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Jay Severin Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay, talking about Donald Trump and what he is doing this week to Ted Cruz, speaking about a story of a friend of mine who really made it big in real estate and got involved with a bunch of wrong guys, did nothing wrong, but slowly got dragged down with him and just telling what happened to him. Ultimately, what ended up happening was the neighbor got around that he was you know, stuck in this little mess here. And although he did nothing wrong, and I saw the case, and he was a real estate guy that grew up in this company, and the company did really well, and I think was a little bit out there, and people saw, and they were probably were a little envious of how this company did. And then ultimately, the principals of the company, the two guys at the top, were you know they were f- caught for acting in a fraudulent way and brought down and taken in, and this guy was completely innocent, and I saw it and I knew it. But what I I didn't know was that his friends, his neighborhood, his community was a little bit jealous of a guy who was down out and came all the way back, and they started to whisper some rumors about him. They started to say that I think he was one of them. He was a crook. He was part of it. He knew about it. And while he was innocent before the law, there's something a little bit different than the law, and that's people's perceptions. And I would say a good year or two after this thing went down, did nothing wrong. He packed his bags and had to leave the neighborhood that he grew up in. Because no one would do business with him. He couldn't go to the community events. In fact, he felt like his kids were being looked at even when they went to school. And I got to tell you, to, to this day, I mean, recently I was sitting in a meeting and I knew someone from that neighborhood and we spoke about a deal and I mentioned his name and the guy says to me, didn't he steal money a couple of years ago? And I got to tell you something. My first thought when he said that was, did he? No, I, I knew he was innocent. I was there. But you see, what happens is when you label somebody, it just starts to become who they are. We don't realize that our words are super powerful. They're super powerful. We don't take our words seriously enough. This is one of the greatest, I think, misconceptions we have growing up is, or in life, which is we don't realize the power we each have. We have words that we use, and we don't ever think that that matters, that that means something. You can say whatever you want. Who cares? I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just saying it, right? And when you're a little kid and your mom tells you sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you, she's wrong. I love my mom, but she's wrong. 
no, my mom's not wrong, but whatever. Moms in general, whoever made that up and gave it to the mom club to take care of the kids who came home that got yelled at at the park. It was, okay, well, you can get it when you're eight. But it's wrong because what happens is words stick. And what happens if they stick is that people look at you and they look at you through the perception that somebody else created. Here's an innocent man that worked himself up through his bootstraps, made a life for himself, got involved with the wrong guys. And because people around them were jealous, he had a perception that was unfair. Ted Cruz won Iowa. Iowa is meaningless except for one thing, perception. It's all it gives you. It gives you a week to gloat. It gives you the Super Bowl trophy. It gives you the Stanley Cup to skate around for one week and go, look at me, I can win, I can win, to go to donors, to go to your, to become presidential. That's all it gives you. It gives you one week from the first to the ninth. You get one full week of being able to say, I can win. And Donald Trump goes, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. I'm not letting Ted have his victory lap. No way. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to label him a cheat. He doesn't care about Iowa. Donald Trump cares about Iowa. Donald Trump cares about 1% of the delegates. He doesn't care about Iowa. Donald Trump's up 20 points in New Hampshire. Donald Trump doesn't care about Iowa. He's got his chance. What does he do? He looks for your weakness, and then he labels you, and he hits it, and he hits it, and he hits it. He doesn't say it once. He hits it until you say it for yourself. Jeb Bush, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Low energy. Where did that come from? Donald Trump. Since when do our leaders have to be all duped up on caffeine? Why don't we want a leader that's reserved? Why can someone who's calculated not be a person in charge of a company? How many CEOs do we know that are incredibly, incredibly successful that are reserved? You think Mark Zuckerberg is is this big guy? How about the guys at Google? GE. How about the guys at Delta? Go through the entire Fortune 500. I bet you that most of those CEOs... You would say, isn't the guy running around giving speeches the guy who can get things done? I don't know if Jeb Bush is a good guy or not, but low energy? What does that have to do with being a candidate? Because Donald Trump said so. We need a lot of energy to go out and fight Iran. He's low energy. And then he says it, and he says it, and he says, you know what happens? We look at him, and we believe it. You know, I got time to play you a clip for it in a second, and you're going to see something. Even Jeb Bush starts to believe it. Here's what he's doing. Watch it. It's unreal. Donald Trump is labeling Ted Cruz. Because what he wants is everyone to be like, oh, did he win? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think he cheated. I think he cheated. And that all of that perception now gets marred. It all goes. He has, I mean, this is incredible. If you see this, this is unbelievable. He has effectively taken out the muster of Iowa. One man and his Twitter account has effectively dismantled the power of the caucus that millions of dollars have been poured into by just claiming that somebody did something wrong and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it until we all get to think about it and he's labeling it and now Cruz has got to be on the defensive I didn't know that wasn't it that wasn't it and now the headlines on every single newscast is not Ted Cruz wins all the the, the evangelicals are coming out for him and the young people came out for him and oh my god the greatest turnout in Republican Iowa history none of that forget that we don't care about that let's talk about him did he cheat did he did he not cheat did he did he steal the election? Did he not steal the election? This is on our con- You know why? Because half of us going to be like, eh, maybe he is a cheat. Now Donald Trump sets us up perfectly. Here's what he does. Look at this. This is great. If he wins in New Hampshire, see, I won it fairly. Right? If Ted Cruz wins in New Hampshire, well, you know, who knows about Ted Cruz anyways? You want a guy like that? I want to play you something from Jeb Bush. Talk about the power of words. This is the power of words. If we understood the power of our words. If we understood, by the way, 
that labeling somebody, our kids, our friends, if we understood that, we would watch our words a lot more carefully. If we understood that every time we say something to somebody else and we, we just talk, we're just sitting around the coffee machine just talking. We're just talking to our, our, our spouses and we say, yeah, this kid's like that. Anyone here a teacher? You look at a kid and go, he's dumb. He's this. He's that. If you understand the power of what your words are doing to other people, you'd be, we'd be more careful for what we say. And more importantly, how many of us are still living on those same labels? How many of us are going through our week going, I knew I wasn't enough. I knew I was always that guy. When I was a kid, my parents said this to me. When I was a kid, my teacher said this to me. When I was a kid, my friends always called me this. How many of us are living up to that label? Because it's the label that creates the perception of who we are. And guess what? Reality is just as much real as it is perception. It's perception that drives behavior. It's perception that makes us do things. That's what gets us from being okay to being great. That's what gets us up in the morning. Can we do it? That's what gives that person for across the table for us, our wife, our husband, our kid, our friend, our employee, that motivation to move, to become, or that's what takes away their spirit. It's when we label them and we say things that make them feel a certain way. And we're seeing this. I can't believe this is true, but we're seeing this in politics today. We're seeing labeling against labeling. They called Rubio the, the Republican Barack Obama. Why? They want to label him. This is what we're come down to. When we come back, we're going to talk about Marco Rubio, what he's doing in Jeb Bush, just what they're getting through. And we got a lot more coming up. You're listening to The Jay Severin Show, and I'm Charlie Harari, and this is The Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Excelsior. The Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. This is the Jay Severin Show. Charlie Harry filling in for Jay. Hope everybody's doing well. Talking about Iowa caucuses, talking about Trump and Cruz. But, you know, that night had a very interesting effect on another candidate. And this, to me, I had seen rarely. But when you see it, you got to appreciate it. And we've been talking about Marco Rubio and his game plan and how I got to tell you, Marco's got a great chess game. I mean, politics is chess. You can't just sort of go straight. It's like football. That's how we love football so much for, right? Because football is chess. You're just seeing live people playing chess with the ball. Politics is chess in the same way. And if you get caught up in it a little bit too much, you get caught up in the game, you forget about the issues. But I think if you look at Iowa, you got Ted Cruz come out on top. You got Donald Trump who came in second, who's trying his hardest to label Ted and to bring him down and to grab at his ankles and pull him down from the top. And while these two guys are duking it out, right, you know, this is the HBO, you know, Saturday night world event, these two guys duking it out, there's another guy high-stepping in the end zone for winning the bronze. Listen to this speech and try to forget who said it and tell me when you hear the speech what you're, what you're getting at and who said it. Thank you. So, 
So this is the moment they said would never happen. For months, for months they told us we had no chance. For months they told us because we offered too much optimism in a time of anger, we had no chance. For months they told us because we didn't have the right endorsements or the right political connections, we had no chance. They told me that we have no chance because my hair wasn't gray enough and my boots were too high. They told me I needed to wait my turn, that I needed to wait in line. But tonight, tonight here in Iowa, the people of this great state have sent a very clear message. After seven years of Barack Obama, we are not waiting any longer to take our country back. So now when you hear that, you think to yourself, what happened to this candidate beforehand? If you were listening to that speech and I said to you, okay, what happened right before this moment? You would say that candidate won the caucus, right? Tonight's the night. The people have spoken, and they've spoken in a way to show that they're not happy with Washington. Well, wait, wait, let's, let's take, the, take this back for a second. Marco came in third place. Third. Not second. Not close second. He came in third place. And we're talking not about a general election, right? We're talking about a Republican election. So, of course, all the candidates that were voting were already against Obama, right? These are Republicans picking their guy. It's not like Iowa's like, hey, we're done with Washington. So the undecided, the independents and the Democrats came and voted for a Republican over a Democrat. We're talking about Republicans picking one of their candidates. If anybody – all the Republicans could have said the exact same line. But Marco comes up and says, they told us it's time to wait our turn. I guess they were wrong. Well, Marco, you came in third place. Maybe they were right. What's going on over here? So Marco is pulling a great move, and I want to explain it and understand it so we can see just how the Rubio campaign is doing this. Now, what's amazing about Rubio is that the latest polls show that Rubio has just pulled ahead of Ted Cruz in second place in New Hampshire. And with just a few days left, I would tell you, I would say that Donald Trump, who's been hovering around those mid-30 numbers, I think you're going to see Rubio coming up and up and up on those numbers and getting a pretty good showing going into South Carolina. Because Marco Rubio is doing something that every single candidate wants to do, building momentum. Now, you ever wonder to yourself, why is it that whenever you're watching a game, right, you go and you're watching a game, you sit down on Sunday to the Super Bowl, right? And you may find that one team is down to the other team. If you're ever watching a game and you see one team down to the other team by 20 points, and that team starts to make a comeback, how do you feel? You get excited, right? Like, I don't care who the team is. I want them to win. Why? So I got this. I, I don't know if this is, this is real or not, but I had this thought the other day I want to share with you. Uh, two weeks ago, I went to Miami and ran in the Miami Marathon, which is just a crazy concept. Um, running, by the way, if you've never ran in a marathon before, it is definitely should be on your bucket list. It is unbelievable. Getting up at the crack of dawn, being freezing cold in those corrals, and then just running and running. It, it's just so amazing. And 
it was somewhere around mile six or seven, right? You, you go up, basically, you come out of the American Airlines Arena down in Miami. You go over this MacArthur Causeway. You come down, and you go. St- you start running through the streets because basically you just then turn back around and run over the causeway, and you go and you finish it. And I'm running in the streets, and what's happening? It's now seven a.m. Sunday morning, and it's cold in Miami, which means it's like you know fifty degrees. Poor Miami, right? So it's cold, and I'm watching something. And as we're running the streets, now this is seven a.m. on a Sunday. I see people coming out of their houses, coming out of the coffee shops, coming out of the bagel stores, and they're just standing in the streets and they're just watching. They're cheering. I see people getting up and they need signs. That means to make a sign to hold up at a marathon, that means you got to get up early. You got to make the sign. You got to get there. You got to park your car really far and you got to just sit there. And some of the signs were just like generic, like go, go runners. In my head, I'm thinking, what are you doing up? I got to be here. I signed up for this thing or I got signed up for it, which is how I ended up there. I don't. If I was on the other side of that barricade, I'd be in my bed. Why are you cheering me for? And it hit me that one of the most inspiring things to see is movement. It's momentum. It's inspiring to see somebody else try to reach a goal, right? They were standing there cheering us on and they were smiling and they were, why? Because if you're not running yourself, there's a certain level of inspiration that you get when you see somebody else about to accomplish something you see all of us have this internal desire to be great it's in it's embedded in each of our souls we if i you can't say i am mediocre because when you say it comes off your tongue you know it's not true because we know we're more than mediocre we know we're great but greatness takes a lot of work and it's hard and you got to wake up early and you got to go to bed late and you got to, you know, you got to bite your tongue to not say the wrong thing. And you got to do it 10 times and you got to you got to stay focused on your task and you can't keep on looking at your phone. There's so many things you got to do to be great. But inside us is this internal feeling that we have greatness that is built within me. That's why I believe we watch sports. For those of us that are sports fans, I bet you if you really, deal, do, you, you really dig down into the core of your soul, it makes you a sports fan that you get to watch somebody else be great every single weekend. That's why you'll never see a fan get up and go, you know, go to a stand and go, you're number one. What are they going to say? We're number one. I'm like thinking, you're not number one. That guy's number one. And he's driving a Humvee living in a mansion because you spent all your money to make him number one. You're, not, you're like number a million. We would never think that because we are number one. It's our team. I'm living in a way through you because I know that there's greatness in me and I'm watching you become great. I'm watching you fight for a goal that you believe in. I'm watching you go through a line and deal with obstacles. All the, all the necessary ingredients of greatness is coming my way. I'm watching you do it. And I feel good along the way. Humans are addicted to momentum. We love it. There's a parade. We just join it. There's a crowd. We just get into it. People are cheering and chanting. You ever see people dancing? You can't stand unless you're, you're bad at dancing or that you always feel bad. If you see a crowd dancing, you always find a way to either bop along or get, why? What are you doing? We just can't stand to the side when everyone else is moving. It's called the bandwagon effect. If there's everyone getting on a bandwagon, we just can't sit and wait it out. We want to be part of something. And more than that, we want to be part of movement. We don't want the people that are winning to win. We want the people that are losing to win, right? We want underdogs to win. That's how we love underdogs. That's how my favorite movie of all time was Rocky Four. How do you not love Rocky Four? Because he beat Drago. 
That's why we love stories of Stephon Curry. We, when you see an NBA player or an NFL player, you want to hear he came from, 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 from the inner city. You want to hear he overcame challenges because you want to see the momentum. You want to see the movement. You want to know that it wasn't just given to him or her. Marco Rubio pulled a doozy at Iowa. You know what he said? We got movement. We got momentum. He already accepted the nomination. <laughs> it was an acceptance. I couldn't believe it. They said, it's not my turn. Marco, it's not your turn. You're number three. There's two guys older than you in front of you. No, that's not how he's playing it. He's playing, here we come. Four days later, the guy goes up four percentage points in New Hampshire. Why? Because of his policies? Not because of his policies. Because he came up with a new tax plan? No one cares about a tax plan. If you care about a tax plan, Donald Trump would have 0% of the vote. Why? Because Marco Rubio is gaining momentum. And when you jump on his bandwagon, it feels good. That, by the way, is one of the greatest moves in politics. And by the way, if you watch Hillary Clinton pretend she's an underdog, that's what she's doing. That's why Bernie Sanders is getting so much movement now. Because his crowd, he was down 50 points. 50 points. Momentum. Movement. So it all comes down to. And when you see candidates trying to show that level of momentum, what they're doing is saying, jump on my bandwagon now. You want to be with me early, don't you? And I wonder in our own lives if it's because we deep down want momentum ourselves. What area is going on in our lives now where we can say, you know, the truth is I should have a little more momentum on this. What happened to that project that I always tried? What happened to that marriage that was supposed to be great? What happened to that kid that was supposed to What happened to my own health? Wasn't I supposed to go to the gym? When we have a healthy dose of our own momentum, we allow ourselves to look over at other people's momentum and judge, should I be on that bandwagon or not? But either way, kudos to Marco for taking a third place win, taking a bronze and scrubbing it scrubbing it enough till it turns into a gold and watch closely to see what's going to happen in New Hampshire and I bet you that when New Hampshire comes through wherever Marco places you're going to see him saying we are going up and that momentum is going to build because momentum is inspiring we come back we're going to talk back about Jeb Bush you know the power of words is a big deal and just what happened to Jeb Bush this week and why two little words could have just really killed his presidential presidential chances this is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay Severin, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Jay Severin Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay. Hope everyone's doing well. Talking about Iowa and the aftermath. Trump, Cruz, and they're duking it out. And what Rubio is doing. Now, just to be clear, I'm not going for any particular, well, I am, but I'm not talking about any particular candidate right now who is or who isn't my choice. I'm just sort of identifying and highlighting the different chess moves because I think it's just absolutely fascinating as to what's going on. But there's one person that I just feel like just can't catch a break. And if you ever had a moment did you, where you, you said something that you regret, you ever do this, you ever like send an email and you hit send and you go, 
oh man, that was such. Or or worse, you send a text and it like self it auto corrects, right? That's that's a mistake, but that's just funny stuff. But just if it doesn't, you send a text or you, you write an email and you're like, I shouldn't have said that. Well, when you're a presidential candidate. You basically have people following you 24-7. So you don't got to be sending anything. You just got to be saying stuff. And then you got to really think about the words you say. Listen to this small little Jeb Bush clip. And I, I want to remind you of the labeling theory that we spoke about earlier with, uh, t- with Donald Trump. And just what's happening to Jeb Bush. Listen to this. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. Oh, my gosh. I, mean, <laughs> I got to tell you, I heard it a million times. I just I, know, I, I feel for I feel for Jeb. Do you realize what just that was? Do you, I want to. There's two incredible idea, lessons here. One. It's Trump's labeling. This is all it was, right? Why in the world is Jeb Bush defending his energy to a tiny little crowd in New Hampshire? It's because Donald Trump labeled him low energy, and now he's got to run around and overcome that. So he's going, well, yeah, I like quieter people, and, you know, that'll be better for when you're making good decisions. And then it stays quiet. Now, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm sure that silence was deafening. And I'm sure that politicians are used to, like, saying things on a stump. And, you know, I speak around a, a bunch. And a lot of times I say things and no one, no one claps or laughs. And I got to tell you, when you're up there, it's just really, really alone. But please clap is, I think, the come on, guys. I mean, come on. Like, I am so tired. I just spent $100 million and came in, like, eighth they're killing me out there. I just need somebody to tell me that when I'm done speaking, that I'm okay. And I, I feel for Jeb, but it, it just shows me the lesson of the lesson. Please clap, unfortunately, is going to be what we are. Unfortunately, I, I'm, this is going to be a lot of what Jeb is going through. And it's going to identify and characterize his campaign of somebody who hasn't been able to muster up the energy and the support that he was. I think at this point, the please clap line is going to be the end of him. That's I, I, I believe that. He's already you know teetering on the end. And when, when that has gone viral a million times, it's on everybody's show. Everyone's talking about it. And I think it's his admission of I'm not getting it on my own. So please, please, please. But when I heard it, I really I, I felt for him. How many times do we have our own please clap moments? How many times have you said something that as it came out of your mouth, you go, man, why did I say that? It's so important that we realize the power of our words, that this is such an important lesson, I think, that we're getting from the candidates. Words can destroy people. Words can build people up. Words words can create momentum where there is no momentum, and words can indicate to other people that you feel that you're not making it. we come back in the second hour, we're going to talk about Hillary and Bernie, and we're going to learn some lessons from the greatest game around the Super Bowl. This is all coming up on The Jay Severin Show. And you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay Severin on Hour 2. We're talking about Hillary's big speaking fees and why they may hurt her chances of beating Bernie Sanders. Also, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl 
and lessons we can learn that we can take with ourselves long after the game is over. This is all coming up right now. Welcome back to the Jay Severin Show. Charlie Harari filling in for Jay, talking about Iowa and some of the takeaways we take we take from Iowa. I mean, Iowa is only important because, not for the delegates, because it gives us some lessons to see, to learn, prepares us for New Hampshire, and allows us to sort of learn more about the candidates, what they're facing, what they're going to face. And I got to tell you, watching it from the Republican side was hour one, and I wanted an hour or two to go a little bit into the Democratic side. Of course, we're going to try to take some calls later on in the hour, 888 We're going to try a little later on in this hour to go to the callers and get your opinions. I want to talk a little bit about Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. What a race. I mean, unbelievable, no? I think Hillary won by like 0.03 or 4% in Iowa, which to me, I mean, I know she came out and said, we won, we won, we won. I am sure she was crying in the bathroom of her airplane afterwards. I mean, there is no way Hillary Clinton or anyone on the Clinton team, unless they are totally doped up on, on Clinton, that they're thinking that we won this. She was up 50. Po- I mean, this is somebody who has literally built the greatest political machine that we've seen in the past 20 years. She is, I mean, so the presumptive nominee to the point in which incredible candidates Democratic potential candidates sat this one out because the rule on the street was or on the hill was nobody is beating Hillary. And here comes this no name senator from Vermont named Bernie Sanders, who is, you know, reminds me more of my grandfather than anything else. I mean, the guy's too old and his ideas are so un-American and he is just giving her a run for her money to the point in which, I mean, to think that she won Iowa and there was like a whole bunch of precincts that there was so close that it was decided on a coin toss. Did you, hear, did you hear this? That there are precincts. It was a coin toss. I mean, for real, you're deciding who is winning Iowa by, the, and it happened to be that Hillary won every single time, which is just like, if she doesn't win, I think Vegas is a way to go, but she makes enough money in speaking, so it really doesn't matter. But the fact that she won this election on the flip of a coin really sends, I would think, shivers down the spine of everybody in her camp. And I'm wondering with you today as to why that is. So since then, there was this issue that has been hovering around her. The, I, the issue of her accepting big fees for speaking. Have you heard about this? Basically, after she ended her tenure as Secretary of State, she was running around and speaking at banks, at insurance companies, at all these institutions. And she had made, you're ready for this, in just a few years, she made $9 million in speaking fees from Wall Street firms since she left the State Department. Now, I want you, that is just an incredible, incredible number. 
One in particular was from Goldman Sachs, which she made $675,000 in fees just from, I think it was a couple of speech just from them alone. And she's poo-pooing it, like whatever, like that's what they, they wanted to hear my words. Isn't that what it is? And the question is, why do we care so much? Why does it matter to us? No one cares what Donald Trump does. Donald Trump gets up and says, I'm rich. And we go, yay, Donald Trump, right? Nobody is looking into how Donald Trump makes his money. Why is it that people are so bothered by Hillary Clinton and her making her money through these astronomical speaking fees from Wall Street firms? I think she made some money from colleges, if I remember, uh, UNLV, UCLA, yeah, you know, UConn paid her somewhere in the range of two hundred or more thousand dollars a speech. And why is that? You know, like I said, I ran this marathon a few weeks ago, and I I didn't just run; I didn't just get on a plane and go to Miami, right? I I went with a group. It was an organization, and what this organization does is this organization is a support organization for people that have cancer and their families. It's an incredible, incredible organization that literally walks into the lives of so many individuals facing cancer and helps them through hospitals, through visits, through a million ways. And we went down for the weekend, this whole organization, and I had the opportunity, uh, more of the honor, to speak to the entire group of runners, of uh, fans, of supporters. Um, on Friday night, they had this huge weekend, and I addressed the crowd Friday night. And the woman who introduced me was a woman who lost her son. It was so heart-wrenching. I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. She spoke about her, her son. He was a teenager. He had some feelings in his hand, and it ended up becoming a tumor, and he died. It was heart-wrenching. And then, you know, then I got up, which was so hard to follow. Um, and then when the speech was over, people, you know, mulled around a little bit. And I had the opportunity to go over to this woman who introduced me and just sort of like thank her and tell her how, how inspired I was. And we got to talking. And I asked her, what was it about this organization that you care? Why, why is an organization like this so important in your life? And she said to me, you know, her son had cancer. She says, you cannot believe the amount of sympathy you get from people that come to you, friends and family when your child is diagnosed with an illness like this, she said, but people can really be dumb and say dumb things said, because sympathy doesn't really help, right? Sympathy is when you feel bad for somebody else, right? So someone has a problem and you feel bad for them. Usually deep down sympathy is when we feel bad for ourselves because we never want to hear of problems. And so we somehow deal with our own anxiety or problems with problem by saying things. And when somebody is sympathetic to somebody else, they'll say things to try to make them feel better. But usually it doesn't work because sympathy feels like it's my problem, right? Not your problem. She told me stories of great people in her life that said things that were just insane. Like, at least you have your other kids. Like you can appreciate what family is. Like you had good years with him. Like think about you have your health, right? All things that are absolutely ridiculous for somebody to say was said to this woman. And she explained to me that she was so sick of the sympathy that she was getting that when she got to this organization, what she experienced was not sympathy. It was empathy. Empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is I feel bad for you. Empathy is we feel bad together. Empathy is I can't believe you're in so much pain. I'm here. What can I do? Empathy is, I can't imagine just what you're going through, but I, I can only 
I can only try, but please, what do you, how can I connect to you? How can I put myself in your shoes? I teach a course in entrepreneurialism, and I tell my students all the time, if you want to be a great entrepreneur, do not have sympathy for the people you're making a product for. Have empathy. Don't feel bad for your customers that they need this product or that product. Be the customers. Put yourself in their shoes. Live what they live. Feel what they feel. Try. Use the imagination that God gave you in your brain to try to be somebody else. Try to live in their circumstance. Because when you live in someone's circumstance, you can feel a little bit what they're going through. It may not be as severe. I'm not saying you're going to put yourself in someone else's shoes and be, get all of their pain. But by trying to identify with them, you're saying to them, I am here for you. It's a deeper connection. And then you can see the things they need that would be invisible to everybody else. Every parent knows what I'm talking about because parents empathize with their children. They feel the kid's pain. My son this morning said he had a headache. I had a headache. And my whole day, I'm like, is, is he okay? Is he okay? My wife's like, I don't know. Is he okay? Because when your child is feeling a pain, you're feeling the pain. So your kid looks at you and says, well, you're not separate from me. You're not looking down on me. You're not here taking care of me. You feel me. We are connected. You may not be me, but we're connected together. You get me. Empathy shows that you get somebody else. And when you see someone in pain, the greatest thing you can give them is empathy. I feel you. I'm here for you. I want to understand what you need. I don't want to say the things so that we all feel better. I don't feel bad for you. I feel bad. Empathy draws us together. Sympathy starts to break us apart. This difference, in my opinion, is the difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And the fees show it. What do I mean? Well, I'll explain as soon as you come back from the break. You're listening to The Jay Severin Show, and I am Charlie Harari, and this is The Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. On The Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Jay Severin Show. Charlie Harari filling in for Jay, talking about Hillary Clinton and her problems, mostly because she is connecting to the for her her audience, her fans, in a much different way than Bernie is. And what is that difference? And we spoke a little bit last a couple minutes ago about the difference between empathy and sympathy. And it's really important to understand that difference because that's the difference between Bernie and Hillary. And the the difference, empathy is we, sympathy is you. Right? Sympathy is good. Sympathy is I care about you, right? I'm going to take care of you. I feel for you. Empathy is I feel with you. Now, why is that so important for? You know, the president is this really weird running for a job. You would never, ever hire a CEO the way we hire a president. And everyone always complains, hey, you know, you never look at the resume, you never look at the resume. The reason is because... That's not what a president really is. What a president is, is your representative in office. You, that's, the, the, the words they use is, do you want to have a beer with him? Right? What does that mean, do you want to have a beer? It means that, do you want to hang out? Do you feel that he is with you? 
Because if somebody is with you, then you know that in two years from now, when this happens or that happens, or you know, there's a war, or Iran has a bomb, or the Fed changes rates, or we go into a depression, it doesn't matter. Nobody can predict four years from now. You just want to know that whoever's in that office is with you. You got to understand what's happening. Hillary Clinton is speaking to a mass of people that are trying their hardest to climb out of a world where they feel, I'm not saying if it's true or not, they feel there's income inequality. They feel like they don't have a chance. They feel like the American dream isn't available to everybody. There are college students. Now, remember, the Democratic Party lives and breathes on the power, on the back, on the legs, on the heart of the college students across the country. The college students are coming out with debt of a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars that they're never going to pay back in their lives. It's one point two trillion dollars, seven million defaulters. This is a big crisis. Hillary Clinton got a hundred, two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars from UNLV, three hundred from UCLA. She made three hundred grand from a college where that's tuition. You don't know me, Hillary. You you feel bad. You can feel bad for me. There's no way you know me. These speaking fees are important because what they show the people is that Hillary is not one of them. Remember, she got these fees after becoming Secretary of State. You go and serve your country, and because you serve your country, then you get prominent. And you take your prominence and you leverage that to get the ability to charge fees that for a average American, this is years of salary. How could you know me? How could you feel my pain? How could you understand me paying mortgage and tuition? How could you understand I got to pay bills? How could you understand food stamp? How could you understand that I got two jobs, Hillary? I'm a single mom. You don't know me. This, and I, I think we're, we're missing it. If you're not, I think this is a big deal because this is the single, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's like, you know, a smoking gun because there's no smoking guns. It's just a reminder to the average American that she's not average. You don't, you're not average when you go to a school and make $200,000 in a speech. You're not average when you go to a bank and you make – you're not average when you make ten almost, you make $9 million in a few years from giving a bunch of speeches. You think anyone's here what Hillary Clinton has to say? If they did, her, her rallies wouldn't be half empty. They just want to play around with the toy. They, she's a secretary of state, and they want to say, hey, look, we got the secretary of state. Nobody really is thinking about her opinions. You think a guy in Goldman, you think there's a trader in Goldman who's the expert in, in default swaps, wants to hear Hillary Clinton's perspective on anything? No. She was just prominent. Well, guess who made her prominent? We did. We the people did. No? And when you see somebody... And you don't feel that she or he is empathetic to your plight. The words sound right, right? But there's something that feels off. There's something that just doesn't feel right. Because will she be there for me when the banks come knocking on the door? Will she be there for me when I got to, she's got to choose between me and the guy who wrote her out a check for more money than most Americans see in a few years. Will she think about me after I give her my vote? She feels bad for me. Okay, I get that. She's fighting for me. I get that. Appreciate that. I get the sympathy. And if all you had was Hillary, then I think she'd be just fine. But up comes Grandpa Bernie. And Grandpa Bernie says, hey guys, I don't know how I'm going to pay for anything. 
I love I love Bernie Sanders. I mean, I don't really think he'll be president. And if he does, I, I don't know what I'll do. But he reminds me of my grandpa. Really, he does. He's like my grandpa, right? Like he always gives the kids money. He doesn't really have the money. He just gives it. And, and, and you know, like the aunts and uncles give him the extra money. You know what I'm talking about? He's always handing the kids money. He's always saying, "Oh, it's going to be great." And there's always somebody that's the real problem. It's millionaires and billionaires that are the big problem. I, I love him. But I think the difference in Bernie Sanders, although I disagree with every single one of his policies, and Hillary Clinton, is. Bernie Sanders appears empathetic. He he appears to the crowd as we, the people. And Hillary appears, you, the people. And I think that small little difference, same policies, same this, even though they're not the same policies, but basically you can say the same thing at the same time, but it just comes across differently. And this applies to our lives. Your parent, your kids care as to whether or not you feel for them or with them. You got little kids at home, you look down at them, or you get down on a knee and talk to them eye to eye. You got a teenager, you forgot what it's like to be a teenager. Guess what? It's not easy being a teenager. You got employees, you got a spouse, you got people in your life. They're going through stuff because that's what life does. It throws stuff at us. We don't want sympathy from people. It makes us feel worse. You know what we need in our lives? Empathy. We need people to walk around and say, you know, you come from a different background than me, but I, I, I want to understand what you're going through. I want to put my head in your head. I don't want to just judge you because you look different. You're from a different background. Maybe you're from a different party. I don't want to hide behind my group and look over to you and make judgments. What I want to do is put myself in your shoes just for a moment. And that, I think, is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. Imagination. The ability to see things that we have never experienced. The ability to be places we've never been before. The ability to go to somebody and say, wow, I'm going to try to somehow put myself in your shoes and then feel your pain before I judge you, before I tell you what to do, before I have to figure out if you're, you're good for my life or bad for my life. And when you feel that someone's empathetic, they never have answers. You ever notice that? It's usually that I've never once rarely do does any response change any circumstance right rarely have i ever seen someone say wow i'm going through christ oh you said don't worry oh you know because i was worried about that but now I'm, oh, i am good thank you for the don't worry i didn't think of that it's not that they're looking for that you know what you're looking for a connection they're looking for parents that are going to fight for them they're looking for a boss a leader a president uh, a leader in your your synagogue or church or wherever you wherever you practice your faith, a leader wherever you are, they're looking for people to look at each other and say, we are in this together. Because we the people, to quote Ted Cruz, we the people is the strongest body that our country has. And when you get that, we become totally different. We come back. We're going to go to the calls, 888-900-3393, 888-900-3393. And if we have some time, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl. You're listening to The Jay Severin Show. I'm Charlie Harari. Fill in for Jay. And this is The Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. On the Blaze Radio Network.
The Jay Severin Show. Welcome back to the Jay Severin Show. Charlie Harari filling in for Jay here. We're going to go to the callers in this bottom of the hour, 888-900-3393, 888-900-3393. We've got Mark from Ohio. Welcome to the show. Hey, my good man. I, you know, I, I can't believe that the the that you're filling in for, for Jay and going going for Rubio. I mean, it's just an embarrassment. It really is. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm not, I'm not in any way going for Rubio. What I'm doing is giving a perspective as to what Rubio is doing. I'm not in any way saying that I'm going for Rubio. What I'm saying is that I want you to see what Rubio is doing in order to get himself more votes. I actually loved what Cruz said. I actually love what Cruz is doing. Um, In fact, the moment for me, I didn't get to it because it wasn't relevant, but when Cruz got up and he said to God belong the glory – uh, my, I just my heart skipped a beat that here's a guy who's got the humility to begin his acceptance speech with a praise to God. And I completely, completely uh, applaud him for what he's done on ethanol and how he's told people that I don't love these subsidies and the way he's run his campaign. I don't want you to mistake in any way that I'm going for Rubio. All I'm doing or like I'm going for Bernie. <laughs> when I when I point things out, it's only to try to give people a perspective as to how the game is being played on, on, on either side of the aisle. I, I, I understand the God to the, you know, uh, glory to God, but I mean, uh, Huckabee or, or Sam Torum could have said that for, for crying out loud, but, but they didn't win. What's that? But they didn't win. So tell me why you're going for Cruz. Because he's a strict constitutionalist. I agree. That's what, that's what, that's what conservatives are. I mean, we don't, we don't, bandwagon uh, effect we don't uh, crowd mentality effect we you know we don't do those things you're right we're about truth we're about we're about constitution yeah um you know and 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 rubio is plainly he's a liar he is a he is a dirty no good liar well i, I mean and, i i don't, don't want to go as far as that but what i want to say to you f definitely and and I, you know i appreciate you i know you were holding for a little bit and I, I, I agree with a lot of why you like Cruz. I, I don't want in any way bash Rubio, but, you know, I agree that, that, that Cruz is a constitutionalist and he's a conservative. And what I love about the way he's running his campaign, and I think this is what you can get as president, which is why I think he won Iowa and why you got to look out for him, because he is not going to be swayed. He is not going to be bought. He's going to, I think, I think, again, we don't know, but I think that he's a person that when you are going to vote for a conservative, you're getting Ted Cruz. And I agree with, with why you're so passionate about it. And I want to thank you so much for the call. That was Mark out of Ohio for that. And, I, and like I said, with everything that we're doing here, we're not going for one or another candidate. Uh, I'm just trying to give some ideas and hopefully bring it into each and every one of our lives. And, you know, we end, you know, I want to just sort of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about Super Bowl. You know, what's amazing about the Super Bowl is that it is the most – watched game in the entire year. 110 million people are going to be watching the game this week, probably maybe even more. It is a, a moment where I think it's, unfortunately, and I say it with this huge exclamation point, unfortunately, we care. We, the Americans seem to be more paying attention to Super Bowl Sunday as a holiday than Independence Day and Memorial Day and Labor Day. This, to me, is you know beyond me. I would much rather have Independence Day and Memorial Day, for sure Memorial Day, be a bigger day than Super Bowl Sunday. But, you know, I guess it's this game that drives everybody. And, you know, every time I watch the game, I I ask myself, what is it about the game that makes it so 
enticing, that makes it so engaging. And I don't believe deep down that it's just because it's, it's a sport. It's not that. It's, it's, there's something very special about, I think, the Super Bowl, something very special about sports in general that give us a, a lesson, a clue in into our lives. And I want to share with you something that happened to me this week. Um, you know, some of you, uh, you know, what I do professionally is I, I'm a strategic advisor. I help people, uh, very, various types of people, CEOs, regular companies, um, individuals. And this week I got three different phone calls. And I want to share this with you. And, and I think the, the answer, the, what I gave these few people really is the lesson that I'd like to leave you with as we walk into Super Bowl Sunday. Because I think if you, if we learned this lesson that is clear, in the NFL. Um, I think we'll become better for it. So I got a call, three different phone calls this week. One call was from a 30-year-old guy. He's dating somebody. He's about to get married. He doesn't want it. doesn't know. He's back and forth, back and forth. He's in between like five jobs. And he's just sort of like, you know, spinning his wheels. And and he doesn't really know what to do. And he's about to sort of propose to this his girlfriend when he deep down doesn't know if he wants to or not. And he basically said to me, like, I don't know what I want anymore. I'm just going to do it. And he was sort of stuck. You know people like that? Stuck? Okay. Second phone call I got was from a 17 or 16-year-old girl. Unfortunately, she's had a really tough life. Somebody connected us, and she needed a little bit of advice, and she called, and she's having a hard time at home, and her parents are killing her and really just on her all the time, and she's basically left the house, and she's, I would think she's doing, you know, a whole bunch of drugs, and she's really on the streets, and, you know, she was, she got involved in this rehab center, and she needed a little bit of someone to talk to that wasn't in the area, and, um, you know, someone asked me to, to speak to her, and very similar. She's, she's unfortunately, like, talking terrible thoughts imagine 16 years old like what's my life going to she's 16 i'm like 16 you didn't even start you didn't get out of the gate in life yet but i don't know what to do i don't know what i need i don't know what i want everything's terrible i hate my life a real like moment of despair my third phone call was with a 40 year old ceo got a small company got some people he's got a family it's a community member and he doesn't know what his business is going for he doesn't know what to, he feels like he's stuck and he can't move his business. His his expenses are growing. The community needs more. His kids need more. You know, and he's just doesn't know which way to go. And what I offered as advice to each of these three people was almost an identical answer. And it had to do with the Super Bowl. And if you think about it, what makes this game so great? So there's a lot of reasons, a lot, I think a lot of answers, but there's one thing that always sticks out with me when I watch sports, especially the NFL. If you've ever seen any of the, um, the documentaries done by the NFL, and what you'll find is that an NFL team is arguably the biggest team around. You've got tons of players, you've got tons of trainers, you've got those guys, those awesome guys sit in the booth, you know those guys, and they always go into the guys in the booth that are calling plays to the guys on the ground. You've got the owner's box, you've got the janitors, you've got the, the beer guys. When you're talking about an NFL team, the people on salary, there, there must be two, 300 people. And from the first moment of training camp, they have one thing that they say. We trying to win Super Bowl. That's it. It's one goal. Everybody has got one goal. And when you have one goal, there's a certain clarity that everyone's looking for. There's a certain um, ability for people to say, hey, we're all going to be doing the same thing. We're all fighting for the same thing. We know where we're going, and this is where it is. And because Super Bowl is such a big deal, 
because it's so prominent, because it's just one game, it's so clear to everybody in the entire organization that there's nothing in the world that they care more about than that, winning the Super Bowl. You know, it's amazing. The Navy SEALs did this incredible study. Navy SEALs had this problem years ago where some of their trainees were failing right before they were about to finish their training. And what the, the final uh, test was the trainees had to jump into this pool and had to hang out in the pool for a little bit. And they had to like stay there just for a couple of minutes. And they gave you oxygen masks. And you had to swim to the bottom when you're done, touch the floor, and then you pass. And what happened was, unbeknownst to these trainees, is that while they're in the pool, let's say they had to stay three minutes, I don't know how long it was, but you know, you just get on the pool for a couple minutes, their instructors would come behind them and like push them and harass them under the water, take their oxygen mask, turn it, tie it into knots, and then swim away. And these guys would literally just, um, they'd panic. They would literally just panic, and they would all swim to the top, and they would fail. And they were trying to figure out how to way, way to get all these trainees to pass. I mean, it wasn't a hard test. They've gone through so much more. I mean, there's Navy SEALs. You know what I'm saying? They're like swimming in the water. They're rolling around in sand. They're jumping out of boats. They're jumping out of planes. I mean, this isn't like, you know, a bunch of guys, you know, you know, running in, you know, in a marathon. We're talking about the Navy SEALs. This shouldn't be something that they fail. And they just something was working. And they brought in this psychologist, and they tried something out in the Navy SEALs camp. Here's what they did. They put the guys in the room, and they sat them in a chair. And they said, here's what's going to happen, and here's what you got to get to the end. And they had them think through the entire exercise. They're getting in the water. They're in the water. And they're just thinking it. They're thinking it. If you've been listening, we've been talking about the power of the imagination, right? And they're thinking it and thinking it. And then someone's going to come, and they're going to harass you. And then you're thinking it. And they're going to tie your stuff in a knot. And they're thinking it. And here's what's gonna, how you're going to feel. And here's what you got to react to. And they're just seeing themselves to the end. They're seeing themselves to the end. They're seeing themselves deal with their challenges and then touch that floor and then swim to the top and pass. And they're seeing it. They haven't gone in it yet. They're seeing it and they're seeing it and they're seeing it and they're seeing it and they're seeing it. And then they put them back in the water and they find that their, their passing rates almost double. Now, why is that so important for? And what does that have to do with the Super Bowl and with the three calls that I had? We're going to explain it when we come back and wrap up the whole show. This is the Jay Severin Show, and you're listening to Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Jay Severin on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Jay Severin Show. Welcome back to the Jay Severin Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Jay, talking about Super Bowl, talking about this great study the Navy SEALs did in which they had their, um, their, their trainees, they had the people that were trying to be Navy SEALs really think through the entire exercise until the end, and then that helped them actually pass this really tough test. I'm talking about why that actually helped them. Why in the world would a Navy SEAL, who is one of the greatest trained soldiers that we have, who can go out and jump out of planes and swim through oceans, why would sitting in a room and thinking about finishing a test really matter? And the answer is that our minds always try to orient around where we need to go. And there's two ways to live your life, passive or active. You want to react, you want to be proactive. Everything in life comes down to those two things. Am I reacting to life or am I being proactive? Am I going somewhere? The power of our mind is that we can actually sit in a room and think about the end. We can begin 
with the end. And when you begin with the end, you know how you can just just scale it back and know what to do next. And that's what the seals did. They knew what was happening to them. They got to the end. And then once you get to the end, you can scale back and go, oh, okay, then I got to do this. Okay, then I go back a little bit. I got to do this. When I gotta, okay, I got to go in. I got to anticipate them coming at me. I got to go. And they can actually figure out how to get somewhere because they know what the end is. You know why that 30-year-old guy doesn't know which way is up and that 16-year-old girl is ready to give up on her life and that 40-year-old guy that's got a business that's not going anywhere is struggling? It's not because they're not talented. It's not because they've got a good life. You know why we all feel that those wheels are turning and it's not hitting the ground. It's not because we're all talented because we're super talented. We've got crazy brains. We can do anything we want. You know why we're living this way? Because we don't know what the end is. You know what I told all three of them? I said, I want you to write out the Super Bowl. They're like, what? They're like, write out the Super Bowl. I'm like, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, write out the end game. Tell me where you want to be in a year. Forget about 30 years from now. Where do you want to be in a year from now? Write it out. What do you want to be in a year? And when you can articulate where you want to go in a year from now, then you can figure out what do I got to do today to get me closer to that game, to that end. It's amazing. That guy, 30-year-old guy, his whole life changed. He was like, oh, my God, I didn't know I was going this, I was going there. Once we can articulate where we're going, we can evaluate where I am right now. And that's why I love the Super Bowl so much because it's so clear. Everybody's fighting for one thing. Everything you've done all year is just going at a goal. And it's just one big goal. Every practice, every drill, every up, every down, everything is clearly going to a end that everyone has seen on the first day of training camp. And that, I would ask each and every one of you, do you have an end? Do you know what, where you want to be in a year? What's your Super Bowl? Because if you're clear with where you want to be in a year from now, it can help you figure out what do I got to do today? Is today just about reacting to everything or can I be proactive in getting to where I'm going? That's what life's all about, right? Using the power of words properly, not labeling people and also not allowing ourselves to live by labels. Momentum, building it in our own lives, having momentum in what we do. Empathy, trying to serve others, not by feeling bad for them, but by trying to feel bad with them. And most importantly, beginning with the end in mind. Taking a minute. That's why the beauty of radio is. I love radio because you get a minute to think. You get a minute to listen, to, to interact, and to react. You're not always going and going and buzzing and buzzing and beeping and beeping. We don't got to live this way. We don't got to always be on all the time. You can stop. We can think. We can ask ourselves, what is the Super Bowl of my marriage? What is the Super Bowl of my parenting? What is the Super Bowl of my career? What is the Super Bowl of my volunteering? What am I here for? What do I want to accomplish in my life? And when you have moments like that, it becomes inspiring. Because you know what? Even if you fail, it's better to fail at a goal than to never have a goal at all. And I think, win or lose at the end of the Sunday, the fact that two teams or all the teams were fighting for that one goal, and it's just a game but it's a metaphor. It's inspiring. It brings out the best in you because that's, I think what life's all about. It's not settling for a good life or a great life, but really trying to push ourselves to have an awesome life. It's hard. And there are things in front of our way. But when you see the end, when you could use that great mind we have, when you can play by the right rules, not bring people down, 
bolster people up, you live a different life. Thank you again for listening. It's an honor to be able to fill in for the great Jay Severin. This is The Jay Severin Show. I'm Charlie Harari, and you're listening to The Blaze Radio Network. This is Jay Severin on The Blaze Radio Network.